You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Welcome to All the Things. This is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. And as you can see, Monique is not here. Oh, but never fear. Monique went on vacation. She's actually on the airplane right now. And uh, we're happy that she is going on a little trip and good for her. And, um, we miss her already, but never fear because she's here with us in spirit. And we were pre-recorded some content that we're going to play on the live show. I am live, so I will be here to help field the questions and all of that. But uh, so you can just go ahead and get on the chat box and talk to me. And Bob is here and... I am, I guess I should introduce myself. I I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and we enjoy discussing the cultural issues of our day in light of the Christian worldview here on All the Things. And so I do want to encourage you to join the conversation. It's a good uh, opportunity to ask some questions about the faith or interact with us about the content as we go along. So we we'll already have a commenter says that they're watching and uh, welcome Theo. So I don't know if I recognize your name. Maybe you're a new viewer, but uh, thanks for joining us and helping on the show tonight is Bob, <gasps> the official hey. button pusher. Hello. My camera's not working, but yeah, I, my but, microphone is, but you're here. Yes. Abby is not. She, uh, <laughs> we have a, Skeleton crew here tonight on all the things. Abby. We got it. Abby went to a school function. So she's having fun at that. So, uh, and now is a good time just to remind us to, uh, of a couple ways that you can help to support the program. And that is to click on that share button. We're going to have a fantastic conversation tonight and it's a good opportunity to share it with your friends on your social media feed. Make sure to follow us, and if you're on YouTube, uh, subscribe to the channel, and be sure to hit that notifications bell so that you will get notified whenever we post new content. So, um, but that is the most practical way that you can uh, help spread the good word is click on that share button. Now, if you missed our show a couple weeks ago, I want to draw your attention to it just in case it slipped by you. Uh, we interviewed the international pro-life advocate, Uju, and I'm, I normally leave the pronunciation of Nigerian names to Monique, but since she's not here, I'm just going to call her Uju because that's what she went by when we interviewed her. But she gave us an amazing interview. And if you happen to miss that, be sure to catch that on the replay. Uh, you can catch that on the, um, Replay on you on YouTube or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. We also talked about the theology and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. So if you missed that conversation, you want to check that out as well. Now, in tonight's show, we're going to kick things off here in just a minute with a conversation between Monique and I about the film Just Mercy. 
It's playing right now in movie theaters. And it's really one that you are not going to want to miss. You are going to want to make an effort to go see Just Mercy and uh, to take your teenagers to it. We took Abby to it. Um, very important film. So stay tuned for that. We're going to start that conversation in just a minute here. And later in the show, we're going to be talking about the life and faith of Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant died tragically this week. And I'm trying to figure out what camera to look at. I'm not trying to be shifty eyed. I'm looking like out of the corner of my eye here. So, all right. So I want to, um, we're talking about Kobe Bryant. Yes. And, um, Monique had several thoughts and just talking about a little bit about Kobe Bryant's faith, which is somewhat underreported in the news. So that, and the tweet of the week. So you won't want to miss that. Be sure to stay tuned to the end. Okay. Like I said, uh, Abby, Monique, and I went to the movies this week. And once again, we watched a great film and there were three other people in the movie theater. People, we got to get some some dollars behind the good movies if we want Hollywood to make good movies. Uh, so we went and saw the film Just Mercy. And a few days ago, Monique and I sat down and recorded some thoughts about the film. So let's check it out. So you're out of town. I am. And Well, you know... Not technically yet, but by the time this airs. Yes, I will be out of town. I will be up north enjoying some time with my friends. Yes, enjoying some vacation. So, but we don't want to leave our viewers without a good word about the movie Just Mercy, which we saw a couple of nights ago. Yes, with Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, I thought that they both did such exceptional, gave exceptional performances in that movie. It was really good. Yeah. And it'd probably be good to mention that it's based on a book. Just Mercy. Uh, Just Mercy with the same title. Uh, I think we have a graphic for that um, up on Amazon if people want to check that out. New York Times bestseller. And um, really the the who the movie is based on, this, this lawyer, Brian Stevenson, is the author mm-hmm. of this book. And um, Harvard grad, um, black lawyer um, who graduated from Harvard and really wanted to make a difference, not just in the lives of black people, but in the lives of people who were um, incarcerated without having the ability to really um, receive proper legal assistance and legal representation. Yeah. I think one of the good things about our system of justice in our country is that everyone is entitled to a defense So if you can't afford an attorney, there's a public defender to defend you. Unfortunately, the reality is they don't always give you the best representation. Yeah, a public defender. I mean, unless they are really upstanding, there are times highly motivated. You may not meet with them. You may meet with them once. They don't present all the information they I mean, and in in their defense, a lot of them are overworked and bogged down with a ton of cases. So we can see that the whole system, it's a a rough, it's a rough system. Yeah. And so, you know, people who can't afford attorneys and have to rely on public defense generally, you know, end up with longer print prison sentencing and just outcomes that aren't usually favorable. Yeah. So this lawyer, uh, Brian Stevenson, he graduates from Harvard and starts something called the Equal Justice Initiative. He moves to Alabama mm-hmm. 
And the movie kind of focuses on his start there and his first couple of clients that he starts working with. And in particular, he focuses on death row cases where he, he believes that the evidence doesn't really add up. It's not that he's necessarily trying to get guilty people off. It's that he's trying to free innocent people that were wrongly um, prosecuted and convicted Yes, and are now on death row. Yes. So I think that the story kind of happens in the early nineties. It starts, I think, um, I think the main character's situation, Johnny D., um, was in 85, 86. Yeah, somewhere in there. And so I feel like it starts probably early to to mid-80s and then goes on from there. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is that there's a, a, a client, this guy, his nickname is Johnny D., and he gets um, arrested, prosecuted, and convicted. Of a crime he did not a commit. Of a girl, a, yeah. a murder. Yeah, of a, murder. A, a white girl in a dry cleaners. Yeah, Rhonda. Yeah, and so kind of one of the parallel stories or background stories is that this is all kind of happening in the same place as the book To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Mm-hmm. And um, it's in the same location. There's a couple of references to going to the Kill a Mockingbird Museum. And there's a bit of an irony in that story, too, about a white woman being raped by a black man and he's innocent. And so there, there that is a little bit there are parallels. There, yeah. There's a little bit in the background here of, Hey, like this is still a problem. This is still happening in the black community, but Stevenson's enterprise isn't just about defending blacks. It's really, I think you rightly pointed out after the film, it's defending the poor who can't really afford sometimes proper legal representation. Yeah. Um, And I think also highlighting some of the issues that happen in poor, one highlighting the issues that happen in poor communities, but then the, I feel like extenuating circumstances that happen regarding race and things like that in poor black communities. And at that time, how easy it was to just say, oh, I think he did it. Oh, he looks guilty. Yeah. And someone be convicted on the fact that they look guilty or they look black and black equated guilt. Yeah. In that time. And so. So one of the first clients he works with, actually, he tries to get a stay of his execution, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And that guy goes to the electric chair. Yeah. He went to the electric chair. His name was Walter. Um, Herbert. Herbert. Yeah. Yes. Um, He went to the electric chair and he was guilty. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that he was not guilty. The the stay of execution was because of his mental health and that the fact uh, the fact that he had been like a vet and came back home with PTSD and was having all of these other situations that were never presented in court and thinking, you know, this guy may may be better off in a mental health institution and serving out the rest of his life sentence there rather than, you know, executing him when, you know, his mental health played such a a big role. Yeah. But I mean, mental health institution or execution 
the information was never presented. And I think About that's, PTSD, uh, yeah, I yeah. think that's the bigger concern is that this guy was under mental health care or had been, you know, reported for having these mental health episodes and things like that. And it was on record, but no one that was never, you know, entered into the, the information in the court. And then you see in the, in the um, movie that the court, you know, refused to even allow that information to be entered. Yeah. And then the second major case that's dealt with in the movie is this one with Johnny D mm-hmm. who is a black man who allegedly kills a white girl in a dry cleaners. Mm-hmm. But then we're following the story of trying to prove his innocence and it, we don't want to give too many spoilers, but it's, it's quite a story of bad investigation. Shall we say it's, bad presentation of evidence? What it re- what I, in the end, what I thought about was that, for some black people in the going through the juvenile, not juvenile, but going through the, the judicial system, instead of having to prove your guilt, like the prosecution proving your guilt, it's now my job to prove my innocence. They like it's it's a uh, innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, it's guilty until proven innocent. And there's and this was a theme that I saw was like, there's this constant, like, let me prove that I'm innocent. Let me prove that I'm innocent. I've, I came in here guilty. He was guilty before his trial. He was put on death row before his, you know, before his, his trial and before he was found guilty. But technically what they said by putting him on death row already was that you are already guilty. Show us that you're innocent. And any piece of information that was turned in until it reached the Supreme court they would throw out yeah, because in their minds, he's already, he's black. He's already guilty. And so what we see in a lot of, you know, cases in this time, especially and before is the fact that black people were always guilty until they were proven innocent. And I think it's important to point out, like, we're not talking about the sixties and Jim Crow. No, this is like, this is like the nineties, late eighties, early nineties. I think the the film ended in the mid nineties. Yeah. That's the, the time period where they cut off. And one of the guys um, that I don't remember his name and he isn't like super highlighted in the movie, but he just got out like three years ago after serving 30 years, his case was finally overturned and he was proven innocent. Yeah. But again, it's this idea that guilty until proven innocent. And sometimes it takes years or decades to be able to prove your own innocence. Yeah. We should probably tell people like this is, it's a really important film. We both felt like it was a really important film. People yeah. should go try to see it. Yeah. And we're a big advocates on the show of like, if there's good art, go patronize the arts, go spend your money, drop some cash, mm-hmm. support good movie making. And I think that this is an example that's worthwhile of your money. I think it's worthwhile of our, of our money and it's good art. And it brings to light a very um, serious situation in America is this mass incarceration system and how it can be unjust against the poor and how it can, you know, be unjust against people of color. Like, what do we do with that? One of the things that I really appreciated about this movie is that um, Brian Stevenson had a white um, client. It, so it to me, it showed that, OK, this isn't just about black and white, but this 
is about poor and this system that will throw the poor away. Yeah. And how do we speak out against that? How do we change that system? I I also think that part of the movie, part of the undercurrent of the movie was to maybe get rid of this capital punishment system. And whether people agree or disagree with capital punishment is fine. You can, you know, stay where you are, but how do we how do we promote capital punishment knowing that there's such a high rate of people who are incarcerated and put on death row and there's so many um, broken pieces in their in their system, in their story of getting to death row with information that hasn't been presented or things like that. Um, Brian Stevenson in 30 years has had 190 cases overturned. Well, and I think just to kind of put some additional numbers on that at the end of the movie, I think they said like one one in nine, one in nine cases is not substantiated or gets overturned Mm -hmm. on death row. One in nine is a high number. That's a high number to be supporting capital punishment. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I can, I will honestly say, because I don't have to hide it for me, I can support capital punishment. Like, I'm like, you know, I don't really want to spend all this money, especially if the person is guilty. Found. Like we know that we know that we know. And, you know, people will write in and say, well, what about grace? And what about, and that's fine. You're welcome to do that. But I can't support a system that will lock people up and put them on death row, knowing that you have a one in nine record of having someone falsely, falsely accused or falsely imprisoned or having um, evidence planted on them or having evidence left out and witness statements left out. I find that hard to, to support. Yeah. And I think that probably the rejoinder to that would be, well, look, eight out of nine are, good convictions and good investigation and sound, but still one in nine is, but if you're the one is an alarmingly high number. And for those 190 people that Stevenson has been able to reinvestigate, reopen and overturn their convictions because of bad trials or lack of evidence or whatever. I think that that is worth talking about. I think so too. And again, like I bring it back to how does this impact people who sit in the church. So when I look around church and I know, you know what, a certain percentage of these people fall below the poverty line. A certain percentage of these people are people of color. What percentage of that, if they were incarcerated, would either have evidence missing, evidence planted, be convicted um, on faulty premises, like, how does how is that impacting people within the church? Yeah. These I, are some of the questions that I feel like we should be talking about in church. Like, how does this, it doesn't just impact culture. It imp, Yes, it does impact culture, but it also impacts the people who come into the church. Why do you think, I mean, just kind of building off of that, why do you think this is an important film for Christians to see? Like, cause it's, it's a hard, it's a hard story. Like when you and I came out of the film, and and by the way, we 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 want to recommend people take your teenagers to the yeah. film. There's no like gruesome, awful things that not happen. a lot of swearing, yeah. no f words. Yeah, no, it's it's an important film to to take your teenager to talk about the concepts with them. Like we took Abby with us to go see it, and it was a good conversation afterwards. 
but it was hard. It, it, was. it was hard. And you and I had very different reactions to it. Yes. You know, and, and I was looking at it because of my filmmaking background. I was like, you know, it was really well-written, really well-acted. It was compelling storytelling. It's, I don't think people appreciate how hard it is to tell a good story like that and not have it come across as completely preachy or, um, manipulative. Mm -hmm. Like it was really powerful storytelling that was definitely designed to make you think and shift your emotions and challenge you and get you caught up in the story. And it did all of those things really well. It's a good example of good filmmaking. Um, but for me, there was, there's a lot of negative portrayals of white people. Like there's a few selected portrayals of positive white people, but there's a lot of negative portrayals of white people. And there's a part of this that some people are going to have a reaction to of like, Oh, here we go again, more villainizing of white people. Um, so there's, there's that component. Well, tell us a little about your reaction. My reaction was, you know, I'm glad that people are talking about this. I'm glad that we're seeing a more complete narrative of American history and even our recent history. Um, I didn't walk away feeling like, you know, this is just a story to villainize white people. I felt like this is American history. This is American today in yeah. some ways. I mean, it's 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, and how do we wrestle with that? Yeah. I think that, like I said, there were depictions of white people in the story who you know, walk through a process of redemption. There were white people in the film who started out good and ended good. I don't, I didn't see it that way, but I also don't wear white skin. And so my vantage point was a little, is a little different. Um, but I don't think that the, the nature of the film was to villainize white people, but to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is the reality here. Yeah. This is, and that doesn't mean that that is the reality in all of America, but this is definitely the reality in this in that in, location in this location at this time. Yeah, um, and the the sheriff I thought was interesting. He's he's we're not giving away too much, I don't think, by saying he's kind of portrayed as the villain, one of the key villains in the story. If you stay to the end credits, they'll give you some updates about some of the key characters because it's all based on real characters. That sheriff continued in that position, which is an elected position until just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And so that was but, somewhat I mean, disturbing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like this is America's history, but a part of it is also America's today. Yeah. And I know people will say, you know, we had a black president, we can't be racist and you know, all of these things. And yet we can, you know, there, there's been a ton of good work done you know, to overturn issues. And I think a lot of people have done personal work to move beyond bias or, you know, certain biases that they may have and prejudices. And there are some places where I'm just like, y'all really, you still elected him? Yeah. <laughs> really? After you know for a fact that he lied to put somebody behind jail just because of the color of their skin? Like, but he continued to be and reelected. And then he, he was reelected six more times. Yeah. Oh, that no, that pissed me off. That, Sorry, I probably shouldn't say pissed <laughs> in this segment, but you know what? I will say that really there's some righteous anger there. Angered me. Yeah, yeah. Um, How do you think this film is likely to be viewed by advocates of 
critical race theory and what oh, are some goodness. what are some of the more difficult thoughts and emotions that you were wrestling with during the film? I think for me, um, one of the the thoughts that I wrestled with a lot was this is why we have critical race theory. This is exhibit this A. Is, exhibit A. This is why. Like, this is why we had and have critical legal studies to look in, into the idea of the oppressed and the oppressor within legal spheres and why we have critical race studies that look at how different systems like the prison system or the judicial system will oppress people of color or will oppress the poor. Mm-hmm. And and it how people can speak out against that. One of the things that critical race studies does extremely well or critical theory is give people space to use their voice. And I believe that's a reason why it's so well adopted into the evangelical church, because you have people who I think just intrinsically want to speak out against these issues. They intrinsically see this is a wrong. How do we right this wrong? Well, and it's a biblical idea to to speak out on behalf of injustice and oppressed people and the poor and all of this. And so it's like, Oh, I see alignment here, you know, but Proverbs talks to that quite a bit. And so what do I do with this? And so now they adopt this very unbiblical framework because there's no other space really in many churches. I'm not going to say in in all churches because I know some churches have amazing prison ministries and things like that, but it's, I haven't heard a, a, prominent Christian advocacy group going for the rights of the poor within the prison system. Now, um, Stevenson, there are some, some parts in the film where you can see, like he does have a, a bit of a Christian background kind of, it's not very overt in the film. Um, but I hope but it's not in, hostile to Christianity. No, no, not at all. No, it's it's very compatible with Christianity. Yes. Yeah. And so I kind of hope that that was part of his leading and prompting to go that way. But I just kept thinking, you know what? The church should be speaking into this area. We sh- and and, you know, what that looks like can be threaded out. And how much and, you know, all of that can definitely be threaded out. And it's part of another conversation. But if we are just okay with the okay, we're just okay with what I call the okie doke, you know, like like the way things always are, the way things always have been. Critical race theory, critical legal studies, critical theory is going to always have a place because we it'll come in and fill the place that Christians aren't speaking. Yes, exactly. And so instead of Christians leading the way, because we have a framework for actual equality, actual justice, actual treating people with with value, dignity and worth, Christians ought to be leading the conversation. Yes. But because we refuse or or, are lax or don't see it and we don't step into that space, Mm -hmm. critical race theory and critical legal studies just comes in Opens and says, the door, says, Hey, says, Hey, something's here, wrong here. Yes. And here, here's a little space for you. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is the title, just mercy. When I first heard it, I was a little skeptical because I'm like, you know, if you just give mercy, I feel like something's going to be missing at the end of it though. What I realized is that there's an advocacy for justice and for mercy. Yeah. It's kind it, of a, a it's a play, play on, on words. words. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if we all got what we deserved, 
which is justice, we'd be in a horrible, horrible place. And so God graciously gives us mercy. Yeah. But how do we exhibit that in our world, in our culture? You know, there, there has to be justice. But we can't um, call something justice at the expense of another person's, like, dignity, value, worth, freedom. Yeah. You know, like, I can't say, oh, this is justice be- for you because you're white. Yeah. And there's no justice for me or for this other person because they're a person of color. Right. Like, the scales have to be balanced. Yeah. And I think that um, I was thinking about the film, like, what are you hoping? Because I think you're starting to get into it there is what are you hoping people will walk away with as a result of seeing this this movie? Like, what are you hoping that will happen in their hearts? One, I think education, like people I've heard, I've heard comments. We've, you know, received some, some comments about, you know, why do black people want to talk about race so much? Black people just like to make things up. Well, especially at the end of this film, I think there's some stats that are given where it's like, you know, black people ain't making stuff up. Poor people aren't just making things up. And again, this yeah. isn't merely just a black yeah, problem. No, it's this a, isn't. It's probably more endemic of a poor pro- poverty problem mm-hmm. when you don't have pro- can't afford proper representation. Yeah. So, but it in a, it it seems to affect the black community to a larger degree. Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's very well said. Um, so no, things aren't just being made up. You know, racism is still prevalent in America and it may not look the way it did, you know, during Jim Crow or during, you know, that time right after slavery and in the antebellum South. And there's still work to do, you know, and I feel like how do we live in that space? Like, can can people walk away from this movie saying, wow, I didn't know this. Let me wrestle with this a bit. You know, I would be very sad if people just walked away and was like, that was just a good film. Yeah. You know, like, or if like we had a conversation about this last night, how historically accurate is that? If that is the only thing that people are walking away with, to me, I'm like, oh, like to me, that just casts doubt. Like, oh, I, I, I doubt that that's probably true. Now, we threaded that out more so that I could understand what you were saying, because I was like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> there were stats like like it followed. It gave dates. There were court documents and. You know, and so then you you explained to me more of what you were talking about. I was like, oh, okay, I can I understand more now of what you and Abby were saying from that filmmaker's lens. Yeah. Um, But I think an understanding of the fact that incarcerating people without all of the knowledge and are all of the evidence is wrong. Like it's wrong to put someone on death row before their trial. How many times has that happened in in the states? Yeah. Or how many ha- times has that happened in your state? You yeah. know. Um, I think that for me, looking at this, what I really hope people will get from the film is that they'll they'll be willing to go into a, a hard place. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that sometimes there's a tendency for white people to think like all racism is in the past. And you and I are trying to forge this this ground where you can have a conversation about present day racist systems and structures. We can have a nuanced discussion about that 
and we can reject critical race theory. Yes. You know, the, and, and we can affirm that racism is still real in some areas and reject the framework of critical race theory as a solution. Yeah. And we want to have conversations about a better hope and a better framework for racial unity. I actually think critical race theory borrows an awful lot of moral capital from the Christian worldview, but that's a conversation for a different day. But I think that, that we need to be leaders in this space. We do uh, as Christians, because we have scripture has some things to say about it. So rather than shying away from the discussion, Christians need to be leading the way, having the hard conversations. And it doesn't mean we have to get tangled up in this, 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 secular framework over here we can have a distinctly christian approach to these issues Mm -hmm. and we need lots of voices yes we need lots of people to join with us on this project in all different sectors and to look at entrepreneurship and prison systems and prosecution and poverty discussions and all of these things but to do it from a distinctly christian worldview and not fall into the trap of neo-Marxism and social justice and all of that. I agree. I agree completely. And just off the top of my head, I'm like, you know, people will come back and be like, I'm doing all I can or, you know, and that's fine. Um, I know that most people, you know, working people are definitely stretched thin, but how can you give, like, how can you support, share a Facebook post, like support in the ways that you can so that the, our voices can be heard and we can be a force against things like critical theory. Yeah. But too often we're caught up with, I wonder what my friends are going to think. I know I've been there, you know, it's like, oh, I, I should, or I could, or maybe we don't even see it. Donate, give your time, um, share a Facebook post, share a tweet, begin to make others in your sphere aware of things that are happening that potentially could be unjust against People. And I'm not just talking about people of color. Like what is happening in your community or in your culture that are unjust against whites? Yeah. You know, let's talk about that. Let's thread that out some because each person is and each group is facing their own set of things. Set of challenges for sure. Also, I want to encourage people to check out Neil Shenvey's review of Just Mercy. Ooh, it's so um, good. Oh, that is so that thing blessed my of, spirit. Uh, the book, you can scroll down there a little bit, Bob. There it is. So his review of the book, but go read the book. Go check out the movie. Um, make sure to support good art. If you and- read what it says here, I love this highlighted point. His bullet, um, his bolded point. It says everyone concerned about our criminal justice system. Everyone trying to understand the intersections of race, gender, and poverty, and everyone with a pulse should read this book. And I can't wait. I'm going to read the book. I'm Very good. So excited about it. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for for the conversation. I think this was good. Hopefully people go see the movie and send us some feedback about read the book and tell us what they think about all of all of this. So awesome. I will see you guys next week. Yes. Bye. Okay, we're back live. And once again, Monique is on vacation. We you just finished watching a segment that we filmed earlier in the week and she has uh, texted me while the segment was playing there. She's arrived safely in Oakland. So she jumped on the chat box while the segment was playing and it was enjoying your comments there. In fact, let's go to some of those comments right now. And there was some good good conversation about capital punishment. Um, 
Theo says, I agree with Monique, capital punishment is wrong. And then I kind of asked Theo for some additional thoughts about that. Uh, my friend uh, Susanna says, I had, she, she has the book, uh, Just Mercy, on her Kindle, but she hasn't had a chance to read it yet. But she, she actually thinks capital punishment uh, is necessary, but one in nine of uh, innocent people being on death row. Those are pretty scary odds. I, I agree with you, Susanna. And Theo said a similar comment, like Monique said, one in nine people are wrongfully convicted. For me, that's just way too high of a probability to implement capital punishment. And I think that that was um, a key theme that I came away from the movie with as well. Um, those thoughts really raised my awareness and forced me to want to dig a little deeper into those statistics because if that's in fact correct those are pretty um alarming odds about that so um yeah so i do want to let everyone know that i will be doing a live stream sometime in the next 24 hours or so on capital punishment taking a deeper dive into what scripture has to say about it looking at the two views and unfolding some some key questions for us to think about uh, related to capital punishment. So be watching for that live stream. I think I have a graphic here um, on that. Hopefully it's coming up. There it is. What does scripture teach about capital punishment? And again, I'll probably be doing that sometime in the next 24 hours. So if you happen to catch that, feel free to jump in on the chat with me and I'd love to hear some of your thoughts live. And so, yeah, let me just check the chat box. Kimba says, enjoy your vacation, Mo. Yes, I agree. Big steps for her to go on vacation uh, this weekend. Also, I want to let you know that if you missed seeing us at the Women in Apologetics conference, you can still buy the live stream. Uh, it's still available. You can catch all of the worship and the plenary sessions, the three breakout sessions, including uh, the session that Monique and I did on critical race theory. So you can do that. And um, we have a couple of pictures here in case you missed our recap episode from Women in Apologetics there. Monique and I are on the big stage. Boy, it was a big stage, but we got to talk. And, and there's Monique giving a little side eye to a, a spider that she was afraid was going to crawl up her leg. Uh, and she was very stealthily trying to kill the spider. And here's, here's a good picture of her um, uh, giving some parts of her talk. And the pictures were done by uh, Abby, uh, the 16-year-old in the house. But um, be sure to catch our recap episode from the Women in Apologetics that we did, uh, the Women in Apologetics conference that we did last Sunday. So you can hear about all of our adventures there. So... Yeah, get the live stream. There's some great content there. If you missed out, it's not too late to join the party. Okay, last week we had some sad news here, um, especially in LA, but all over the world, really, about the tragic death of the sports icon, Kobe Bryant. Now, I am not a basketball fan. Uh, I don't watch a lot of basketball. But I know that there are a lot of people who are big Kobe fans. In fact, our friend Jane Pantig took a little journey down to Newport Beach uh, a day or two ago to play a little basketball and, and pay a tribute to Kobe. Here she is 
a picture a couple years ago she took of uh, of herself uh, in front of a giant Kobe poster. I asked her if I could show this picture. I just love her her ecstatic expression there. She said she used to be a big Kobe fan. In fact, uh, she has some of his rookie cards. And um, so I just thought that was really fun. I know a lot of people are like Jane, really um, feeling this, the sadness and the heaviness of the news of Kobe's sudden passing, but really the passing of all of those passengers, one of which included Kobe's daughter. So um, again, a couple of days ago, we're wearing different clothes. Monique and I had a little conversation about the whole Kobe Bryant situation. Let's check that out. All right. So I am still on vacation um, and we're filming something else, but that's why I'm in a totally different outfit. It's a different day and just roll with it, folks. Yeah. Roll with it. Going the power of editing. Going to work. Yes, I am going to work. Dress down today. Don't nobody come for me. Um, okay. So it was a really sad moment um, in history. Yeah. Really, I feel like... Um, it's been a somber week here in LA and um, Sunday was definitely a very sad day with the passing of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and not just those two, but also the seven other um, people that were in the helicopter with him and, um, and his daughter, there was a small family, well, a f- part of a family. So there was a husband, wife and their daughter, John Kerry and Alyssa Altabelli, and um, if I'm not mistaken, they have two other children who um, who survived or who you know were at home. And um, then there was Sarah and Peyton Chester, Christina Mauser or Mauser, yeah. and then Ara Zobayan. Who was the pilot? Ara Zobayan, yeah, who was the pilot. And so um, in total, there were nine who um, tragically passed away. And, and Kobe's yeah. daughter was. Yeah. One of his kids. Yeah. His 13 year old Gianna. She was she was there. And so, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a sad week. It might be good to give some perspective to our viewers that are outside of Los Angeles as to what Kobe meant, you know, to our area. And and your social media feed was just filled with with words and condolences. Yeah, I, I think there are pop-up murals um, popping up all over the place in Los Angeles. He was just an icon. Um, I would say even bigger than like Magic. Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan, even though he was from, you know, Chicago and the Bulls. But I, I don't think that Kobe was just um, like looked up to here in, in LA. I think everyone knows about, about Kobe, but our love is so deep for Kobe and just what, what he did on the Lakers and how he really just came through and gave it his all. And he had just such a positive message about, you know, work and he had such a positive work ethic. And, you know, if you want it, then go get it and you have to work hard for it. And he was constantly practicing and constantly working to be able to up his game and get what he really wanted. Uh, so and trying to inspire from what I understand, trying to inspire others to, to do the same, the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he just, yeah, he was definitely an icon here. And, um, from all the pictures that we see, like he really enjoyed being a father and had um, four girls. And yeah, that's his 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 13 year old. That's Gianna. And um, 
yeah, I just there's just so much positivity. Around, I just can't imagine what his wife is going through and the kids who remain. I mean, it's just such a sad, sad situation. Yeah. And I couldn't even begin to to imagine or think about the grief, know, the grief and yeah. shock and like how she found out or. You know, yeah, like, she found um, out through TMZ I or something. Say it was through TMZ. Which, yeah. I mean, That's God horrible. bless social media and all that we're able to do with it. And yet, to me, it's tragic when yeah. things like this break and, you know, you have to find out about that through the same thing that can also do so much good. So now yeah. Kobe, from what I understand, um, was raised a Catholic and in fact, kind of renewed his his faith mm-hmm. as he got older. In fact, there was a really nice write up about his faith on the CNN website that I found. And um, I think we got that here in uh, this. This is, I don't think his priest, but the article was written by a Catholic priest Mm -hmm. on, on the CNN uh, website. And apparently Kobe went to mass that morning, that morning before the crash. And he was pretty faithful about going to mass every week and and often midweek as well and um was you know he had some difficulties as a young man and and he made some rough choices at times but it seems like the renewing of his catholic faith really helped him kind of grow up as he worked with his priest and and um you know that's an interesting side of him that is not super well known yeah i i think that you're young he was super young he he started got, in the nba nba like when he was 17 or something 17 18 yeah it was really young um, but i mean super young lots of fame people just you know making you uh god so yeah. to speak and you know just giving you whatever and i mean too much too quick can be damaging but i think his focus on his family, his focus on his faith, his focus on his kids, all of that, you know, really shifted who he was and who he became. Yeah. In fact, my friend Ken Samples also had a blog post. It was from a couple years ago when it was Kobe's last season. Mm. And Ken is a huge Lakers fan, lifelong. This is on the Reasons to Believe website. And he actually went to one of the games one of, of in Kobe's last season. Mm. And he wrote some reflections about about that experience and how Kobe just pleased the crowd. And every time Kobe did something, every time he touched the ball, the the crowd would roar and and with excitement. And I think it made Ken reflect on the very thing you're talking about is Kobe's rise to fame as such a young man. You know, fame is fame can be rough. You know, it's people want to give you things and and if it's it's hard to handle, but it seems like Kobe kind of grew into his fame as he grew older, as his faith grew. It's hard, though, when you're trying to grow up in the public light, like that's a really hard situation because then all your mistakes are public. Yeah, but I think he did it well. Yeah, I do. I, yeah. I think that. Whether L.A. loved or hated him or people who, you know, love or hate him, whatever. Um, I personally think that he did it well. I think he inspired millions of people. You look at the young people who are playing basketball now, he is the reason why they're playing. When you look at um, like those, the little kid leagues and things like that, 
it's the mamba mentality. It's the we're going to work hard. We're going to shine. We're going to do our best. And so, you know, yeah, he had mistakes, but who doesn't? Yeah. And so if people, you know, want to highlight that or say, you know, oh, well, he had mistakes when he was young. So do you. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like, it's just, it's, I think it's just hard because he was had to be so public because he was famous like forever. Well, and I think I, it, can, it can be hard because he was famous forever. But to me, it his his hardship and his mistakes are no different than exactly. mine or yours. Exactly. You know what I mean? And the yeah, people exactly. that it impacts. We can criticize and that's fine. You know, people are going to do what they're going to do. But, you know, I, I read something where it was on my social media feed about like, you know, who he was when he was younger and things like that. And I'm just like, sit down. Everybody makes mistakes yeah. and give him and give me the grace to grow through my mistakes exactly. or through our mistakes. Yeah. And let that be that, yeah. you know, it's it it helps nothing and no one to to say, oh, but do you remember, yeah. you know, like. And do I remember yours? Yeah. You know, do you remember mine? I hope not. You know, I hope that you would allow me the grace to grow and to move beyond something that hurts someone else, because truly this isn't even about him. It's about the people that he that were hurt as a result of that. Yeah. And so with that, I just, you know, will bluntly say you can take several seats yeah. and, you know, let's celebrate his life. Let's celebrate the the memory of who he was. Let's pray for his family. Let's pray for those who were directly impacted. Like there was, um, I saw yesterday on social media that there was a kid who took a really random selfie with Kobe. And he, I don't know if they were doing a basketball camp. I'm not sure really what it was, but Kobe told him, hey, I have to go, but tomorrow we're going to get the real selfie. Well, 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, you know, the the crash happened. There was no tomorrow. Mm. And so let's pray for that little boy, you know, who had the hope and expectation that, oh, man, like that, that really, you know, what is his thought? What about the kids who are, you know, who emulated and wanted to be just like him? You know, let's talk about that and um, and know that we all need grace. And we all can can grow through, you know, our history and our past. Yeah. And how blessed we are that our need for grace, we're not in the public and where everyone's criticizing us, you know. Yeah. And I think it's a good word that, that we're all kind of in the same boat. We all are growing. We're all learning. We're all we all need grace. And um, yeah, just it's our condolences are certainly with um, Kobe's family yeah. and as they walk in this difficult season. All right. So once again, uh, Monique is out on vacation. And what you just watched was a conversation that we recorded a little earlier and um, a little earlier in the week. All right. Where am I looking? I'm looking here. Okay, we got three cameras tonight. I'm just trying to figure it all out. Uh, And so Monique will be back next week, but I'm taking uh, live questions right now. So we are live right now. Uh, I want to go to Maria. She asked a great question while the segment was playing. She says, so often people, meaning Christians, who oppose critical race theory want to deny any current injustice. How do you best engage them and show them the difference between recognizing reality and going full blown into critical race theory? Maria, I think that is one of the most important questions And it's something that uh, Monique and I are talking a lot about 
And how can, because we've done a lot of conversations up until now of just trying to help people recognize critical race theory. But now we want to start shifting the conversation into um, how can we start equipping people to talk about current injustices? And this is something that Monique has been doing a lot of research on, and we just haven't started making the videos yet because we want to make sure that we have some good research in place so that we can lead people through these conversations. But you're absolutely right. Um, it's not going to be a good strategy for Christians to just merely villainize or reject critical race theory without also having a conversation about the reality that there are still injustices in the world. Now, I think that what people might not be aware of is what some of those injustices are. And I think that sometimes there isn't clear conversation with solid data about how to talk about those injustices. Um, usually when I hear people in the social justice stream talk about injustices, they do it in a very sloppy fashion and it's highly vague and nonspecific. And so one of the things that Monique and I have been having a lot of conversations about is how can we begin to put some resources together to put some responsible numbers and data to the current injustices. We want to also acknowledge that our country has come very far. Like we think that one of the, the main errors of critical race theory is saying that, that everything is racist or nearly everything is racist. Um, that's, we feel like that's a gross overstatement of the situation. We have made meaningful progress. We have laws to help protect minorities and to try to equalize things. But we also still have work to do. And we think that Christians ought to be leaders in those discussions and saying, okay, here's what we've done so far. That's great. We can look at that. We can talk about it. But what remains? What are some injustices that Christians can continue to speak into? So those are some things that are forthcoming and you are hitting on the next logical question. And so the short answer is that, uh, that Monique and I talked about in our talk last weekend is we have to avoid two extremes. We have to avoid saying that there's basically no racism. Racism is, is rare and almost wiped out. That's one side of the error. The other side of the error is the critical race theory error where nearly everything is racist. We can simultaneously not be racist and also reject critical race theory. We can simultaneously have a thoughtful conversation about injustices that are happening today. And when I use the word injustice, I'm defining it according to God's law, not our culture's standard of justice. So these are all forthcoming conversations that Monique and I will be having and, and recording very soon. So I hope that helps to answer your question. If not, just jump right back in the chat box and ask a follow-up. Um, let's see. Uh, our, my friend Susanna says that she had heard, oh, Theo also said he heard that Kobe was a Catholic. Yeah, we mentioned that in the segment as well. And uh, that he actually lived in Newport Beach and he went to the Catholic Church that morning before his passing. My friend Jeremy says, uh, for me, I always saw Kobe as the heir of 
uh, Michael Jordan's legacy. No one except Kobe has come close to filling Michael Jordan's shoes. I think that there's some basketball fans that would agree with you about that, Jeremy. And speaking, in, in fact, earlier I mentioned my friend Jane Pantig having some uh, Kobe rookie cards. Um, there she is. She's a big Kobe fan. <laughs> uh, you may remember Jane was a guest on our show several months ago. Uh, she's a fellow lady apologist, but also big basketball fan. Um, I've been a Michael Jordan fan. Uh, Back in the day, I used to enjoy watching Michael Jordan. So I think you might be right about that, Jeremy. Uh, Theo has a follow-up comment. Do you think that having a multiracial church would help with race relations? Yeah, that's another video that Monique and I hope to make very soon. Um, You guys are right. You're stepping right with us of this whole multiracial conversation. Um, Just to give a little thumbnail about our our thoughts about it and in our journey so far on that issue of the multiracial church. Um, There's a sense in which the universal global church is already multiracial. I mean, the gospel has gone out to all the earth. There are Christians literally all over the globe. And so the vision that's presented in revelation uh, chapter five and other places that members of every tribe and tongue will be in heaven is already being lived out and realized. Matthew 28, 19 is a reality. Now the gospel has gone out and it is continuing to go out into all the earth and it will do so until Jesus comes again. So Jesus's universal church, as it's called, or sometimes the global church is what it's called, is already multiracial. What I think you're talking about, Theo, is the the um, the local church. Um, what about multiracial local churches? And in the conversations that Monique and I have had, um, it's it's a it's a tough issue. Like we don't want to just have one view on that. Like there's there's some churches that are language oriented. Like a Spanish speaking church is trying to reach. Um, reach non-Christians in Spanish-speaking neighborhoods. We need Arabic-speaking churches. We need churches that speak Farsi. And and, um, if there's a Farsi community in a certain city. So sometimes people gather together around certain languages, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Um, In an English-speaking church, you know, I think that we want it to reflect the, the community. If you have a church in the mountains of Appalachia, um, chances are your church is probably going to be predominantly white. And there's nothing sinful or wrong with that. Um, if you are a church in an inner city, um, you know, maybe as a pastor, think about how can I reach my local neighborhood? Um, I think sometimes where it's a little troubling is when a church is one ethnicity, um, let's say it's a white, a predominantly white church, but the church is meeting in an inner city context where it's completely surrounded by a community of people of other nationalities or other races or ethnic groups. It's like, well, where's the representation? Not even so much the representation, but what is that church doing to reach out to that local community? I think that that is a bigger question that Monique and I have raised rather than just having diversity for the sake of diversity. 
It's what is that church's vision to reach their community? So for example, our church is in, um, you know, a somewhat white area, but also there's a lot of people of Middle Eastern descent and also um, Spanish speaking people. So our church has had a Spanish speaking congregation for over 30 years and it meets alongside with our church. And we, we have historically in the past done things together once or twice a year as a whole local church where the English speaking congregation does things with the Spanish speaking congregation. It might be something that our church leadership could explore. Or maybe they are exploring. And I just don't know that of maybe starting an Arabic speaking church, since that's a growing population in our surrounding community. So I think the real question is on the local church level is who's in your community? How are we, what are you doing to reach those people with the gospel? Or what are you doing to partner with other churches in the area to reach those people with the gospel? Um, Not every church has to reach every group. Sometimes maybe this church over here in this part of the city is focusing on the Arabic speaking people, this church in, in the same city, but in a different location, maybe they're doing a Spanish language congregation and maybe they refer people to one another's congregations. You know, how can we cooperate and pool our resources? So these are some of the questions that Monique and I have thought about in relation to the local church level and the whole multi-ethnic church conversation. For sure, what we want to do is have a heart posture where we're making room for anyone who comes in our doors. Um, and there sometimes there needs to be some level of intentionality about that. Um, and to make sure that we are reflecting the community that is around us. What, you know, are there things that we can do to help make sure that we have people in positions of leadership who are contributing to decisions that are helping us understand the culture and the language and the ethnicity of the surrounding community. Are we having people on our elder board? Are we having people that are in leadership or small group leaders that reflect that community? And again, this isn't for the sake of fulfilling a diversity quota. That's the wrong motivation. It should be a heart motivation of like, how can we best reach our community? How can we present an invitation of the gospel to the people who live near our church? So Theo, I hope that helps to offer some things to think about um, with relation to that, to that question. Okay. Uh, I think it's that time of the week for the tweet of the week. It's very sad. Monique's not here to dance with me for the tweet of the week music. Um, And again, she is on vacation tonight and she will be back with us next week. I hope you enjoyed the pre-recorded segments. Um, So let's look at our tweet of the week. This was uh, tweeted out on the Daily Caller, which is, I don't know, some kind of news situation. Um, Holocaust survivors return to Auschwitz to lay wreaths against an execution wall. This past week was Holocaust Memorial Day. Oh, there's such a powerful little video of some Holocaust survivors who are quite elderly and um, their children and descendants um, placing wreaths at Auschwitz. And what a 
powerful image this was for me to, to see these people um, marching in remembrance of the Holocaust. And this, uh, when this, when I watched this video, it kind of provoked my thinking. And then I went down this rabbit hole uh, because I saw these statistics about people's level of awareness about the Holocaust. And I'm like, where are these numbers coming from? So I tracked down the original study and it's right here. It's from claimscon.org. If you want to go look that up, you can see this study in which um, I think may have marginal validity, um, but you can see the um, the margins of error here. And it was conducted with 1300 interviews with American adults ages 18 and over uh, back in 2018. And there was a couple of statistics that jumped out at me um, when I was reading this study. And I wanted to share a couple of these numbers with you. And this first one is that 22% of millennials were unsure or unaware of the Holocaust. That's almost one in four, somewhere between one in five and one in four. Those, those, that's a high number of people that don't know what the Holocaust is or was. 66% of millennials are unable to identify Auschwitz. They weren't sure what it was. So these here are these Holocaust survivors putting these wreaths at Auschwitz and 66 percent of millennials don't know what that is. And Auschwitz is a concentration camp that was used to execute um, tens of thousands of Jews during the Second World War. And um, so that caused me to think about this question of what's going to happen when this generation passes and are we doing enough to educate the emerging generation in the importance of understanding what the Holocaust was and why it matters? Because remembering genocide, I think, reminds us about the depths of our capability of sin. Um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic theologian, who said about 100 years ago, that the doctrine of depravity, the depravity of man is the one doctrine in Christianity that can be empirically verified. I mean, you just look at how we treat one another and the fact that we could even engage in a program and a system, if you will, of killing a group of people simply based on their heritage or their religion reminds us how truly depraved humanity can be. And, you know, humans are capable of great beauty. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had our friend Rachel Shockey on the show to talk about art in the Christian worldview. And part of what it means to be created in the image of God, I think, is that we are capable of creating great beauty. But that image has been marred by the fall. And we see that lived out in our ability to dehumanize people and kill them simply because they belong to another religion. And that reminds us of how far and how deep the fall has affected us as human persons. I think that the third reason why remembering the Holocaust matters is that we need courageous people to stand for the dignity of others. 
um, remembering the Holocaust ought to inspire us to think about any people that we are marginalizing or dehumanizing in that way. Um, Because someday we could be a minority religion. Someday uh, other religions could be in the majority or atheism could be in the majority and we would be in the minority. Who would stand for us? Who would be our voice? So it's important for us to be a voice for minority religions in the sense that we live in a country where people are free to practice religion according to their conscience. And as long as it's a peaceful religion and they're doing it in a peaceful way, I think that Christians should on some level advocate for the protection and peaceable worship of our friends who are Jewish and of other uh, peaceable religions. So how do we, Um, protect people's dignity. So those are some thoughts related to the Holocaust. Now, what can we do? Like, these are some scary numbers that a large number of people in our country do not know what the Holocaust is. So um, if you're a parent and you have some young people in your house, especially some teenagers, uh, you might want to think about putting some World War II books on your kid's agenda Um, You know, maybe if you have younger kids, maybe you put it on their agenda that they're going to read the diary of Anne Frank. Um, Maybe if you have some teenagers in the house, we're going to read about um, maybe the classic Christian story of the hiding place, the story of the Christian family, the Ten Boom family in Holland who hid Jews during the Second World War. Maybe you're going to want to get some World War II movies on the agenda to watch with your teenagers and discuss together. If you live on the East coast, maybe you're going to want to plan a trip to the Holocaust museum in Washington, DC. I really want to get my kid over to the museum of tolerance in downtown LA sometime in this next year. It's one of my goals this year is to make that happen because um, in a recent conversation, I realized she didn't really know about the Holocaust And so I want to make sure that I'm doing my due diligence as a parent and not assume that that's being covered in school. Have some family conversations and be intentional. Don't just assume that your kids know what the Holocaust is. Give them a framework for how to think about this issue and why it matters. Okay, I'm going to check the uh, comments one more time. Um, Our friend Jeremy says, Theo, I attend a multi-ethnic church and I have to say it's quite wonderful. It's especially nice to see the ease with which the children and young people from different backgrounds get along. I love that, Jeremy. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I need more of that in my life for sure. Uh, Akimba says she loves Corey Ten Boom. Me too. I love that story. I read it in high school and it just is a continued inspiration in my life. I had my older daughter read that when she was in high school too. So I got to get that on the younger, the younger kids agenda. Um, Susanna says, although my family is German, but they were in Germany during the war, it still affected them greatly. I went to the museum in LA and it was like walking through my parents' history. Yes, I agree. I've been to the Museum of Tolerance uh, pretty near when it opened. My husband and I went there actually at a Sunday school field trip. Our Sunday school teacher took us all there and um, when we were young adults and that was a great and meaningful trip. Um, 
the Museum of Tolerance. It really covers a lot of issues related to the Holocaust. So if you live in the L.A. area, I definitely would recommend a trip out there. And um, uh, oh, great. Thanks, Bob. Uh, there's a little uh, little graphic from the website of the Museum of Tolerance in in downtown L.A., and also the Washington, D.C. Holocaust Museum. I took my older daughter there a couple of years ago when we went on a trip to D.C. It's also a very worthwhile place to go. So anyways, um, I want to encourage you to check out all the, uh, the uh, show notes that we have for you on the website. Uh, you can get caught up on links and resources that I put there each week. And um, also make sure if you're on social media to like our Facebook page, the all the things has its own Facebook page now and our podcast across all the platforms, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts and share the show, like the show, follow the show. We really need your help to help get the word out about the show. And those clicking on that share button is just the best way to help support this ministry and we do thank you for that all right i'm going to check the comments once again cynthia says great show again thank you thank you cynthia thanks for watching to everyone and monique will be back next week right now the the just the just the mug this is all we've got <laughs> oh this is the uh, official women in apologetics mug that um monique got last weekend at the conference let me see if i can show it there it is it's available through Women in Apologetics. So since Monique couldn't be here, I thought her mug could be here <laughs> in her place. So and we will be back next week with a fantastic show. Um, I can't wait to uh, tell you who our guest is. It's going to be big. So until then, I do hope that you will um, again share the show. And I thank you for all your thoughts and prayers and your support for Monique and I, we just get so much blessing out of coming to you each week. Thanks so much for watching. God bless. Bye-bye.